0: walking through the book of James. Uh, We just have a few weeks left as we consider this uh, very practical and helpful letter. I hope you've been encouraged and challenged by it. I know that I have, thinking through um, what the gospel does to us, what regeneration does to us, how it changes us. And James just does a, a wonderful job laying out these practical changes that will take place in those who belong to Christ. So to walk you through what's kind of going on next, we have a few uh, more weeks in the book of James, and then we will take the four Sundays leading up to Easter and consider um, four of the so-called words of Christ from the cross. There are seven traditional sayings of Christ from the cross. We're going to cover four of those leading up to Easter, uh, on which... On that day, we will consider the words of Christ to his disciples. Peace be with you. And the whole uh, theme of resurrection. Um, For that, we want to be an inviting church. We want to be a hospitable church. And so we've provided some invitation cards like we did uh, back in the fall for you to take with you. There's a bunch of them on the back table. So take um, a few of these cards with you and use them to invite people. friends and family members to church, those who do not belong to a church, those who perhaps haven't been to church in a very long time. Often what it takes is a personal invitation. And so we want to be an inviting church. We want to be a welcoming church. And so this is one of the ways we want to help you do that. And then after Easter, we are going to plan on picking back up in the book of Genesis. If you remember, uh, Daniel, before I got here, preached through the first uh, 12 chapters of Genesis. I picked it up at Genesis 13 and carried us through chapter 25. And uh, so we're going to pick it back up at Genesis 25 uh, with uh, Jacob and Esau and stories related to that and see how Christ is proclaimed in all of Scripture. So just uh, some idea of where we're going in the future. Uh, Let me pray before our time together as we consider James chapter 5 this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we recognize at this moment we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from you. So feed us by it. Feed us by your word, by convicting us of sin, by correcting wrong thoughts or wrong attitudes by showing us what pleases you, by giving us grace, which is found only in Christ. Do all of this by your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, speaking through me, this vessel of clay, for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to to James 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. There was once a man who achieved the so-called American dream. So he got such a good return on all of his investments that he had so much money, he didn't even know what to do with it. That sounds like a good problem to have, right? We, we perhaps have seen examples of that. This guy has so much money, he doesn't even know what to do with it. And so he had an idea. I'll store it away. I'll store it all away in separate accounts so that they can continue to build uh, my prosperity. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of money for many, many years to come. It'll last a lifetime. Take it easy. Enjoy life. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to this man, you fool, you're going to die this very night. And what's going to become of your wealth? And Jesus says in his parable, this is kind of an updated parable of Jesus. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And this is what James is getting at in these six verses this morning. He is echoing his brother Jesus, in these words. Over the last several paragraphs, James has been contrasting ungodly wisdom and godly wisdom. Ungodly wisdom, remember, is self-serving. It doesn't um, take God or others into account. Godly wisdom, on the other hand, is humble. It is is others-focused. It seeks to rest under God's authority and to serve others in love. Now, up to this point, James has been addressing believers. He's been addressing Christians. Uh, Christians sometimes who have fallen, fallen into worldliness, into, he even says, spiritual adultery. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 4, he addresses those who are having fights and quarrels because of their selfish desires. And he calls them to repent in humility. And in verse 11, he addresses the brothers and sisters who are slandering one another and judging one another. And in verse 13, he addresses Christians who have begun to forget the sovereignty of God in all that they do. But for this section, this first time in chapter 5, James takes a different tone. In this instance, he takes a moment to address those who are not Christians. And he gives them really a, a scathing warning. He pronounces judgment upon these people. In this passage, James gives a prophetic warning to the unrighteous rich who are oppressing poor believers. So James's point is clear. Those who trust in wealth rather than God, those who deprive the poor by hoarding up their wealth for themselves will suffer under God's wrath. Since God's judgment on the unrighteous rich is certain, we must make every effort in life To trust and serve God rather than money. And in light of Christ's return, we must be eager to share God's good gifts with others. So here's the theme for this message, and I think of this text. Since God's judgment on the unrighteous rich is certain, we must make every effort to trust in and serve God rather than wealth. Since God's judgment is a sure thing, we can't simply spend our lives building up wealth for ourselves. To walk through this passage with you, I want you to see three truths about God's judgment on these rich. One, see its certainty. It is certain. Second, it is just and justified. And third, it serves, this pronouncement of judgment serves as a warning to everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. So notice first its certainty, the judgment on the rich it's certainty. God's judgment on the rich is certain. Now, keep in mind, James is talking about a particular kind of rich person. Throughout this letter, when James is talking about the rich, he has in mind the unrighteous rich, those who have used their wealth to oppress and take advantage of the poor. Uh, these are those who have placed their faith in material possessions rather than in God. They've loved the world rather than God. They serve one master, and that master is not God. It is money. We have learned that those whom James is addressing uh, throughout his letter are primarily poor believers who have been dispersed throughout the region and have endured suffering and persecution. So we need to keep in mind who James is addressing in this paragraph. But at the same time, I don't think we should quickly brush These warnings aside, as though they have no application to us at all. Now, we'll look more at how this applies to us later, but for now, I want us to consider this. If we've already seen that we can be guilty of spiritual adultery, would it be so entirely out of the question that we might be considered wealthy, and even unrighteously wealthy, compared with the rest of the world? Is that so out of the question? That we could be guilty of this? You know how last week Walter Strickland, our guest, talked about blind spots. We'll have some other ideas on what some of our American Christian blind spots might be. But I have a sneaking suspicion, and this is speculation, but I think it has some merit to it. That our wealth, and particularly our ungodly use of wealth, may be one of the prevailing blind spots of our nation and of the church in America at this point in time. I mean, think about the statistics that come out regarding how little Americans give to charitable causes. It's unbelievable. And you could even consider how little Christians, church members, give to their respective churches, not to mention how much waste there is. Think about how much food you throw away on a regular basis. Now, can the poor afford to throw away excess food? Absolutely not. Think about the Christmas toys that never get played with, the clothes that we throw away, the gadgets that we waste. And the more I talk about this, the more I think about it, the more worried I get that some of us might be included in this number of the unrighteous rich. So knowing that this is addressed to the unrighteous, unbelieving rich, we still ought to allow it to take aim at our own hearts and consider how we possess things, how we use our money, how we think about wealth. How difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. So you might ask, how much is too much then? How much wealth is too much? How how much possessions? How many possessions are too many? When do I know I'm guilty of accumulating too much wealth? Well, my first answer to that is, if you are human, then regardless of your wealth or lack of it, you are using it in some ways unwise and ungodly. We are sinners, and we're going to sin in this way. We're going to sin in the use of our money. That's what it means, part of what it means to have a blind spot. I'm included in this. I have no doubt about it. We spend unwisely and without reference to God. And then you ask, well, why don't you do something about it? If you know that you sin in this way, why, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you change it? And to that I say, well, that too is part of what it means to have a blind spot. That, yeah, you even see that you have a problem, but you don't see clearly enough to actually do something about it, to do what's required to change the situation. In which case we need sanctification. <laughs> It will be a process by which we grow in our godly use of money, whittling away at our ungodly desires and attitudes toward money and growing in our love for Christ and His righteousness that we might seek Him above all things. But back to this question, how much is too much? How much wealth is too much? My second answer to that question is that the question itself, how much is too much, perhaps reveals an ungodly attitude and approach to wealth. The question itself, how much is too much, reveals perhaps an ungodly attitude and approach to wealth. Isn't it the same question as how far is too far? In these sorts of questions, we're asking, how close to the line can I get? How can I toe the line in remaining okay with God and yet still get a little bit of what I want? this is the wrong question, how much is too much? Having been born again by the Spirit, having been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we who are in Christ are rather moved to ask things like this, how can I give more? How can I free up my resource, resources to serve others and make much of God? How can I leverage what God has given me to relieve the suffering of the poor? To care for my neighbor. To care for the poor in my community, in my town. God has given me so much. How can I begin using that for His glory to display to everyone around that Christ is more precious to me than anything this world has? But, I don't want you to miss <clears throat> also the point about the first part of this passage. And that is the certainty of God's judgment on the rich. He instructs these unrighteous rich. See what he instructs them to do? Weep and wail because of the misery coming upon you. Look at his language it sounds like it's as good as done. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. God's judgment on these people is absolute, absolutely certain and inevitable. Now, we know that material possessions rot. And I know that clothes rot or get eaten by moths, but gold and silver, they don't rust, do they? They don't corrode. No, they don't. But James is using this metaphor to show the temporary nature of things, the temporary nature of our possessions. They won't last in the day of judgment. All that you've stored up will be gone. All that you've hoarded will be gone. Money, clothes, houses, cars, possessions, even if you get those gold bars that are advertised on radio and TV as this is what you really need for lasting wealth, it's all worthless when it comes time to meet your maker. It will vanish in a moment. What James is saying here is that how one uses his wealth and material possessions on this earth will serve as evidence for or against, in this case against, him on the day of judgment. Verse 3, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's easy to forget that there is a judgment day and that it's coming soon. After, after all, the world keeps on spinning like it always has, right? And there seems to be no evidence to many that things won't just keep on going as they always have. What evidence do we have that the judgment is coming? And to these thoughts, the Apostle Peter responds in 2 Peter 3.8-14. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. As sure as the rising of the sun in the morning, as sure as the seasons change, as sure as gravity, as sure as the constellations in the sky, God's judgment is certain, more sure than all these things. God's judgment is coming, but it's also justified. It is, God is just in what he is doing in the judgment. If God is going to judge these rich, he must have really good reasons for doing so, and he does. So consider for a moment the justification of God's judgment on these unrighteous rich. So we see the judgment's certainty, but also notice its justification. Look at verses 3 to 6. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now notice the three specific charges James brings against these rich people. Number one, they have hoarded up their wealth, living in luxury and fattening themselves with good things. This has to do with the misuse of resources God has given them, like cattle being fattened for slaughter. These rich voluntarily are storing up wrath for themselves by gorging themselves on material possessions. They didn't need it. Others did. But they turned a blind eye toward the poor in favor of gathering everything for themselves. Second, The second charge James has is they have treated poor workers unjustly. They failed to pay their workers what they earned, and their cries for justice have reached up to the ears of the Lord who is full of mercy for the weak and the oppressed. Another related idea to this, probably in James's mind too, is one that is found throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Leviticus 19.13 says, Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Deuteronomy 24.14-15 says, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. And One of the most despicable things a Christian business owner can do is to take advantage of poor workers. I remember a man who was a professing believer who hired some Mexican men for his manual labor company. He paid them a fair wage, but then after work, often uh, a family member of his would hire them for 2 or $3 an hour to do yard work. And as Christians, we cannot be a part of this or turn a blind eye to this. We are called to justice for the weak. The heart of God is turned to justice for those who are oppressed like this. And our hearts, if we are His, will be turned in the same way. To have no part in oppression and to hear the cries of those who suffer in this way. In fact, we are to oppose those who do such things. And this is not some appeal to like soci- a social gospel. right? This is just the practical outworking of our faith. We who were dead in sins, oppressed by our own rebellion, in our own sinfulness, have been rescued from the domain of darkness. We have been forgiven of our sins because of Christ and Christ alone. Any ounce of mercy you have received has been because of Christ. Any hope you have is because of Christ. Any experience of goodness you have is because of Christ. While we were helpless, Christ died for us who were unworthy. He rescued us from death and hell. And now our hearts move in compassion to the weak, to the helpless, to the poor and needy, to the immigrant, to those who are not like us, to those who are rejected and oppressed by the world. So we cannot and we will not oppress others. And we will not stand by while others are oppressed. This judgment is, that James is pronouncing, is coming on account of these things. It is certain and it is justified. The third reason James gives for their judgment, they have condemned and murdered the innocent one who did not oppose them. This is related to the previous reason, but here there is an even clearer hint of the persecution of poor believers. We're reminded of James 3.6, where we are told, it's the rich who are dragging you into court. It's the rich who are blaspheming the glorious name by which you've been called. And on on account of these things, too, the judgment of God is certain and justified. So, friends, let us take account of our lives even in these areas. Are you hoarding up wealth for yourself? Do you focus on how much is too much rather than how much you can give away for God's glory? Do you pay a fair wage to your employees? Do you pay them in a way that is conducive to their prosperity and their needs? And if you're not a business owner, do you turn a blind eye toward oppression? Or do you stand up for those who are weak and become their advocate? Judgment of God is coming on account of these things. We have seen the certainty of God's judgment on these unrighteous, unbelieving rich We've seen the justness of His judgment, and now let's consider this warning that it has for us. It's warning. God's judgment, or the pronouncement of this judgment on the rich, serves as a warning to us. So you come to this paragraph, and you might think, why is He talking to unbelievers here in this letter to Christians? You may have wondered that sometimes as you hear me preach. You might look around the room and say, I know pretty much everybody here, and they're all Christians, so why are you preaching to unbelievers? Why are you preaching to us as though we are not Christians? Well, I still warn unbelievers and call people to Christ, even if I don't see anybody I think is an unbeliever, for several reasons. One of them is that it's possible that professing believers are deceived about their spiritual state. It's possible they're still in their sins. And they need to come to Christ. Another reason is that we Christians need the gospel just as much now as we ever did. We need to hear about sin. We need to hear about hell. We need to hear about the judgment. We need to hear about grace that covers all of our sins. We need to hear that Christ died for the forgiveness of your sins over and over and over again. And it never gets old. We need to hear of the wonderful salvation. That is, through, by faith alone, by God's grace alone, by trusting in Christ alone. We need the gospel. A third reason is that in warning unbelievers, we Christians are stirred that we might not envy the position or the plight of the unbeliever. And finally, in the warning to unbelievers, there is a comfort to those who belong to Christ. So why was James writing to unbelievers in a letter addressed to Christians? Well, number one, in case they were listening in. Some of these rich, it seems, may have been in their midst, and gathered with them from time to time in their assemblies. And of course, it's certainly possible that some of them were, were deceived, that they were regular attenders, and that they were treated with partiality by, the, unbelie- by be- the believing poor. And this would be right in line with James's earlier directions, to not show partiality to those who come into your midst dressed finely with expensive jewelry, So one, in case James addresses unbelievers in case they were listening in. But second, James addresses unbelievers in this Christian letters that Christians might not envy their wealth or their position in life. There can be a temptation sometimes for Christians to envy the wealth and the status of unbelievers. Do you ever have that temptation? Do you ever fall into that sin? So for instance... There currently is a huge money shortage for the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. For years, the IMB has used reserves and property sales just to keep up with their budget. We've been spending what we haven't had to make up. We've been trying to make up for the deficits. But you can't do that forever, right? And so now they've begun trying to work within their budget and they've had to encourage voluntary uh, retirement and voluntary resignations. And the temptation might be for us to say, if we only had more money. Now, if we were, if we could only be as rich as Donald Trump, then we would be able to send many missionaries, as many as we wanted to. Just think about all we could do with all that cash. Right? Or you might think about things on a more personal level. Think of all the money, all the people you could minister to if only you won the lottery. If only you were filthy rich. If only you were rich like your neighbor down the road. You could help lots and lots of people and then you would also have a little bit left over to spend on your own desires, right? But to this way of thinking, Paul has a stern warning for us. We forget this warning. I forget this warning over and over again. He says in his first letter to Timothy, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now listen to this warning. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You see, we have temporary amnesia when we envy the rich of this world. When we envy the rich of this world, we are forgetting the wealth and the riches and the treasures and the all-surpassing glory that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. We're forgetting the inheritance we have in Christ. How can we, who have an inheritance stored up for us in the heavens, unfading, that will not corrode, that will not be lost, how can we be envious of those whose riches are rotting in this present world? How can we who have Christ as our brother and God as our Father and the Spirit indwelling us envy those who are at enmity with God and will come to ruin on the last day? We cannot envy the rich. It doesn't make any sense. If we know and see the truth, there's nothing for us to envy anyway. This warning is here for our hearing that we might not envy the position or plight of the wealthy. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. James has regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. And also knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might be with a calm and resigned mind and bear them. And this is the third reason James addresses the unbelieving rich in a letter to Christians. That Christians might patiently endure the suffering they face. Knowing that God's justice will be done. We'll see this more next week. Do you see where James is going with this? Look at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. And verse 8, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. This is a call to the believers to refocus on the mission, to trust in God in the midst of their suffering and to remember the purpose for which they exist. In this warning to the rich, James is calling us to faithfulness and endurance and patience in the midst of suffering until the coming of the Lord. And we can do this because we know that God is making all things right. All the wrongs will be made right when the Lord returns. Justice will be accomplished. The oppressed will be set free. The unrighteous will face their end and we will be with the Lord always. But, you might say, is justice a good thing for us? After all, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As you were hearing this message, were you not convicted at some points in your use of wealth, in your use of money, in your selfish desires, towing the line between faithfulness to God and the use of money and wanting to please yourself? Do you not sometimes envy the rich and want to be like them? Do you forget the riches that we have in Christ? So, yes, it's right to question whether or not justice will be a good thing for us. Because if we get justice, we will get wrath. This is, again, why we need to hear the gospel. Over and over, we are taught in Scripture that God is just, and therefore He must and will punish sin. But the gospel is that Christ died in the place of sinners. He's the only one who could stand on the side of justice and not be judged under the law, for He kept the law perfectly. He lived every day for God's glory. He didn't desire the riches of this world for everything in heaven and earth belongs to Him, and yet He died on the cross for sinners for those who desire temporary treasures that will not last. He died so that we could be forgiven of our sins and escape the judgment we deserve. And now any and all who call upon Christ in faith will have nothing to fear on the last day, rich or poor, blue collar or white collar, red, brown, yellow, black, white, for all who repent of their sins and trust Christ to save them based on his perfect life, sacrificial death, and powerful resurrection, will only have joy on the last day when we see our Savior face to face. And so until then, we pray with Agur, son of Jaka, in Proverbs. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would cause us to recognize the riches that we have in Christ who became poor for our sake that we might not envy the rich. Give us so much joy in Christ that everything in this world becomes fading in our eyes like it truly is. That everything else in this world becomes nothing compared to the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in Him. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.